Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Draft Reading Series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops that hovers around a given theme. They happen once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers and workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the Draft 25.0 is a generation thing, and the draftees are Jovan Mays, Poetry, Wesley Webb, Screenplay, Anna Hoagland, Online Fiction, and Liz Westerfield, Advanced Memoir. Thank you for coming for the Draft 25.26.0. It's a big number. So the draft is something we started apparently 27 iterations ago where we thought, wouldn't it be fun if people got to hear what's going on in the workshops? I mean, ostensibly, that's fun, right? To hear what's going on in the workshops. You may come to workshops and never hear what's going on in the other rooms. You might hear the laughter. You might smell the food coming from the other workshops. But you might not ever hear what's happening there. So this is, this is our attempt at transparency. So... <laughs> Each session, we come up with a topic. This time, it's a generation thing. In other words, anything about family, anything about our place in time or some other place in time. So anything, basically. (laughs) Anything about anything. Um, And we try to get as many genres as we can. It's short readings by works, people working on things, works in progress. Um, The first person I'm going to introduce who's going to introduce the person he's drafting (laughs) is perhaps our tallest, not to be reductive, tallest and very brilliant instructor at Lighthouse, um, a poet whose most recent book is We Deserve the Gods We Ask For, which by all accounts, including my own, is a gorgeous work of poetry. Um, Mr. Seth Brady Tucker. Hello. So I have a, I'm introducing a poet tonight who uh, you're really in for a treat. His name is Javon Mays. Um, he's actually the poet laureate of Aurora, his hometown. And um, Javon's been a member of the Denver Slam Nuba national poetry team since 2010, uh, so he's way better in front of the mic than I am, and, and has won two Denver City Slam championships, has made three international final stage appearances, and even won the 2011 National Poetry Slam. He is the Slam Master for Slam Nuba and runs a youth poetry program throughout the Denver metro area called Your Writing Counts. How do I give it a better, like, can I talk about that at all? I want to pitch it for you somehow. Um, He is a graduate of uh, Chadron State College in western Nebraska, where he played football and wrestled and earned a degree in secondary history education. Um, On a personal level, he's just a terrific reader of poetry, a voracious writer of poetry, fun to be around, and um, I suspect we're going to have a special reading tonight from him. 
Maybe Joe Hi. To Queen's Brooklyn Blackness, Flying Led Zeppelin. The record screamed in the crate like a newborn discovering the distortion in its scream. Question, how do you love something that was clearly stolen from your rhythm's piggy bank? Answer, you redecorate it as an ode, knowing that Bonham rolled up Jimmy's pages, filled them with Robert's plants till they John Paul Jones into the hearts of America the way we never could. Ever wonder how people from gardens and fields love beetles and stones like roaches and brick? Like Brooklyn, like across the pond. This is what blues look like when it crosses oceans. Iceberg bouncing, shipwreck stories bleeding from the Mississippi, engulfed by the masses, spaceship to a garage in Aurora, Colorado, where two suburban black kids wanted to learn their dad through vinyl. Saw a blimp burning, blew off the dust, and began learning the tree ringology from this LP. There, we scaled the black mountainside of my grandfather's cancer and his last 10 days to live. We learned about the good times and the bad times, the breakdowns of communication and the days and the confuse. You see, this is for the black kid who can't stop rocking the black keys. This is an ode for you. White kids who drank your grandest, your, your, white kids who drank your grandest grandfather's muddy waters, the ones who kept WC handy, that were shot by Bessie Smith and Wesson, found lead in their bellies and realized that mama must have been with the milkman because these 12 bars are just what happened when crossroads find electricity in Clarksdale, Mississippi. The 12 bars of a black man's ribcage trying to reach djembes across a fucking ocean. No wonder it's infectious. Bass so rich, blind men cannot run from it. Cords so strong, even white men could not hide from it. Oh. Atticus! Atticus said Jim bleakly. How could they? How could they do it? I don't know. They did it. They've done it before and they did it tonight and they'll do it again. And when they do it, it seems that only the children will weep. Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird, All Chairs by Jovan Mays. I have no words, so I borrow these. It's November 24th today, and by all means, we should be shopping for birds, potatoes, and things to stuff inside of birds. Airports swirl with bodies, bags filled with gifts, welcome home posters, and smiling, toothless children. Poets are shitting on the pilgrims, tents are set up outside of Walmart, and most of us will sit down at a table, say our graces, remember Grandma, and the chairs will fill. And the chairs will fill. Some won't. Some a vacant plate, an evicted laugh, a gentrified spirit and the soul of a black boy filled with riot fire, jagged juries, twisted testimonies, and a family. And a family. Sitting around this table, silent after grace, wondering if God, if God will show up today. And all the children weep. And all the children weep. I have no words, so I borrow these. Mama Leslie's tears have not found their levies. Fifteen-year-old Deja watches the steam swell out of the platters. Mikkel's giggle toddlers into hush, and Michael Brown Sr. eats deafening. Fork scratching the plate in hopes that everyone will follow. And for once, the news is silent, but the air is not. And on Twitter, to show solidarity... Insta's gramming shots of empty chairs at their feasts. Could you imagine if we kept the space open for every stolen stripling? All of us eating standing, forced outside our houses, 
listening to their ghostly black boy cackles, watching the food disappear, wondering where the time had gone. No bodies. All chairs. No bodies. All chairs. I'm trying to tell a story, but each one is cut short by the next. So I cheated a little bit. I'm going to use some music. Deal with it. My grandma. She wasn't the Ben Gay and Matlock type. Nor is she some expert in household chore techniques or even chocolate chip cookie recipes. She didn't have an oversized grumpy cat or some undersized chirpy little dog, but there are parakeets within her heart that kept her company when loneliness set in. See, she grew up in Pendergrass. I guess that's somewhere in north central Georgia, so just deep enough in the south that one could actually see the surface. As a child, she would love to observe the flight patterns of turkey vultures. She loved the way that their feathers frayed through the southern sky because where she was from. They were the only things breaking the color line. The experts say that these buzzards shared the same soaring shadows as bald eagles, so sitting there, feeling like a carcass, simultaneously she found freedom. So her mother put her and her sister on the first feather that they could find up north because she heard that up there, Jim, he doesn't clip his crow's wings. So her mother became the first Nubian in Queenstown, her own palace. This was way back when there was actually enough Big Apple to go around the table. In 1995, on a family vacation, I went to visit this place for the first time. Upon anticipation of patio rocking chairs, bare cloth bathtubs, and cypress floors, I was greeted by a hoarder's paradise. Priceless papers were piled to the ceiling. The only place to sit was on the back patio, and there, surrounding all of us, were stacks upon stacks of bird cages. Hundreds of them, no birds, just wrought iron bridged by welding joints in Victorian fashion. All of these devices of entrapment were constructed in such beauty, I didn't know what to think, you see. Last week, I was at the thrift store, and I came across a vintage bird cage. I stood there staring and wondering, why is there so much beauty here? That took me back to my nana and how it must have felt losing her son, husband, and the civil rights movement at the same time. And I began to think, what better way to defend for someone's freedom than to collect those things that trap us by leaving just one less cage in the world and ensuring another scene of formless flight. So I started to wonder, how many people did this woman set free? But you are my father with a one-way Greyhound ticket in hand and sunglasses on the back of his neck, preventing him from pausing in the past, could head to the mile high so he didn't have to feel that low again. Was she the miracle that made my mother follow him to the mountains? Did she swoop my grandfather out of cancer's misery? Does she hold the keys to my throat? Did she stitch my cousins into the Blue Angel, Air Force Falcons that they became? Could you feel like you won the civil rights movement in your own backyard? Let me tell you something. When your time comes, how many people will you have selflessly unshackled? How many doors did you leave open? How many bars did you bend or file through? Did you make sure that the perches around you went unoccupied? Did you tend to their feathers? Did you feed them enough wisdom before their takeoff? When the cage bird sings, their hymns rattle the locks 
or do you swallow their tunes when the doves cry? Do you add any weight to their tears and when that rooster crows, did you empower it to fly an Anna? And why'd you have to go? When we sat around your coffin, I think we all knew that your soul was soaring above us. Your feathers, they must have been praying that sky. Because everyone in attendance was just a cage that you collected. So in the spirit of, of generations, uh, uh, this is just a dedication, um, well, it's a dedication to a lot of people, but uh, sometimes when all this brutality stuff starts coming up, I, I feel like sometimes it's like this prompt for people to start having some sort of argument. And I think that people sometimes don't recognize just, just how much, how hard it is for some people to live with this, um, especially those of whom are put in positions to help Young black men be successful in this world. I don't know how to have that talk. I would much rather talk about the birds and the bees with my 15-year-old nephew than have to try to tell him that I don't know why he might get ripped from this planet for no reason. This is my final poem, and I guess the dedication to the generations that we're talking about. Um, I'm going to be using some music from the movie 12 Years a Slave. Um, and um, yeah, thank you for being a great audience. Today, we're going tuxedo shopping for my nephew, Kevin. He's 15 years old, and naturally, he wants the gator skin shoes and the hot pink tie. I'm optimistic. But he comes out of the dressing room, and my two-month-old nephew, Kevin, stretches his, my two-month-old nephew, Kaysen, stretches his baby arms to the sky and lets out a giggle. Hold on a second. Now you can see me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It lets out a giggle. And I guess this is just how decisions are made in my household. And these days we are all black boys. All smiles. All aspirations. Bright brown eyed figuring this world out. Learning how to perfect our hair. Our jump shots, our end zone dances, our mat games while your mama makes you put grease on your elbows. We laugh explosive, teeth barely grown in. We ask questions of things we already know. We want to be famous and see the world, you know, like kids do. From church skinny ties to flat-billed hats and matching shoes, from finger waves to gumbies, mini fros to dreadlocks, fresh fitted. The freshest of the fresh, ready to grab her hand during couple skate or bring home a report card on these days we are all black boys. All body bags. All filled with holes. All autopsies. All unrecognizable, baptized in sirens and secrets, unaware that others could supersede our skin's darkness. On these days we are all black boys. Our spirits drifting into the night sky, 
Nephews, cousins, uncles, aunties, black boys. On these days, even grandfathers become boys. They stumble back in the time when the narrative was the exact same. When the, entire na- when, the t- when the entire neighborhood had a funeral in the middle of the street for the kids whose name we all knew, mother crying in the backdrop and black boys watched other black boys become asphalt on these days. Even sisters become boys. Only knowing how to teach them how to find the right partner when they're stolen. When they're stolen, it feels like you're breathing molasses air. Eric Garner air. It travels through your body like a horse carriage casket lowered into your chest. Breathing is so heavy on these days. And on these days, we're all black boys, but especially the black boys. Ignorant, unaware as they should be. Emulating their favorite rapper, athlete, or man in their life. So full of effort. So willing to try. So unsure of the world's ways. Shit, maybe wanting to be a police officer one day. A doctor. The president. Hoping they could steer this thing in the right direction. That he could stitch his best friend back together. But he has no idea that he's going up so fast. He can only see it in the way that they see him. Patrol cars are more hungry. Billy clubs are more curious, bullets are more inspired, and he knows this. But he does not know why. Thinks he's famous. Does not feel the crosshairs sizing him up, but we all do. But we all do. But we all do. But we all do. And we still fail to intercept what we saw coming. On these days, we are all black boys. All broken. Forever baffled. And right now, out there in those streets, bleeding. Thank you. Thank you, Javon. I feel like we can already say we knew him when. That was amazing. Um, next up, one of, one of the, my favorite things about hiring teachers at Lighthouse is hiring people who have taken the workshops. A lot of times, despite the fact they have books or short stories published or MFAs or whatever gauge you use to um, to say this person is successful, there's that humility that I still want to learn. And um, this person was just a gorgeous writer from the beginning and um, took a couple workshops, was also teaching at at CSU and elsewhere, where she got her MFA. Um, one of my favorite short story writers is going to be introducing one of her students, um, and she teaches in the online program at Lighthouse that you might not know that we have, but we do. Um, Ms. Jennifer Wortman.
Hello. I'm still recovering from that reading. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. So, the brief biography is not necessarily the snazziest way to begin an introduction. But I'm going to begin my intro to Anna with one, because in her case, I think it's germane. Anna Hoagland hails from the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. She's a clinical social worker with a post-master's fellowship at CU Boulder's Counseling Center, where she specializes in treating eating disorders. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in The Common, Misadventures, Mike, The New York, and The Paradise Review. These few facts, I think, say a lot about who Anna is as a writer, her rich sense of place, her compassion, and psychological insight, and her accomplished prose. She has a knack for capturing the extraordinary in the ordinary, the extreme in the mundane, and the private in the public. The world of her writing is very much her own but it is, always, it is excuse me, also very much our world, as you will soon see. It's been a real pleasure getting to know Anna and her work, and now I give that pleasure to you. Please welcome Anna Hoagland. Thank you. So exciting to be up here. And thank you, Jenny. And um, I'm going to give a shout-out to Erica Krauss as well, who's not here tonight. She was my other Lighthouse teacher. And um, you both have just been invaluable to me. I know I just met you in person five minutes ago. <laughs> but you have still helped me a lot. There, that sounds on now. Okay. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, but anyway, yes, thank you everyone at the Lighthouse, especially my classmates. Um, I felt so supported and challenged, and I've just been so much more motivated um, and confident since I started working here just a couple months ago. And to my friends who are in this area, thank you for coming. Um, so this is about a third of, it's a segment of my fiction project, um, which I'm just going to call a novel because that's what it is. I just never call it that. <laughs> it sounds like something I need to finish at some point. Um, but I guess it's a novel. So this is about a third of the way through, and I think all the context you really need to know at this point is that Cole is a 15-year-old boy. His parents are divorced. His father left his mother publicly in church, and he now lives with his mother, her girlfriend, and his grandmother. He's been picked on for the call, by the Collins cousins before, after there was a dispute between Cole's father and one of their mothers. They meet by chance in the woods behind the high school in early September, both wandering the trails to avoid finding a table in the cafeteria. Cole watches the sun and the leaves and examines the veins of those windblown to the ground. John Kuramoto is eating his tuna sandwich on the stone wall. He tells Cole about chlorophyll and how he read somewhere that fall will come early this year and winter too. 
Soon their meetings become a sort of secret. Not that they agree that it's a secret, but they understand it would be a betrayal to say it aloud to someone else without checking with each other first. They sit on fallen trees and make little structures with broken branches, and after 20 minutes or so, they part, walking out from different directions to not evoke suspicion, then back to class where they don't talk or sit next to each other. John's the one who makes the first touch. He presses his fingers into Cole's sleeve when he wants to emphasize the point. He brushes Cole's face when there's a stray crumb. John's the one who leans over to Cole one day and kisses him on the cheek. And when Cole doesn't turn away, he turns Cole's face to him, his, and kisses him on the mouth. Cole's sweating in the autumn cold and feeling his erection pressed up against his jeans, kissing back and keeping his hands stiff at his side. Is this okay, John asks. Cole nods. I like you, says John. I like you too, says Cole. It's Cole's first kiss, and he feels the wetness on his lips for the rest of the day. For a few weeks, they do this in the woods, touching each other only above the waist, Cole's anxiety and excitement growing the closer John's hands get to his belt, where they pause and move back up to Cole's back and neck. Alone in his father's house, Cole thinks of how John's face looks when it's so close to his, and he imagines what it would really be like to be together out of the woods behind the high school. The day it happens, it's a wet cold, unseasonably cold for early November. The few days of bright orange and yellow have passed, and the leaves are now brown and falling dry from the oaks and maples. On this day, they find each other by the stone wall. John had put a note in Cole's locker after first period. BYO lunch. That's their code. They're holding hands in the woods when the boys find them. Don't find them so much as they all stumble upon each other. For a moment, the boys' faces look as surprised as Cole's and John's, who quickly drop their hands and step apart. The boys, the Collins cousins, snigger and laugh. Oh, come on, the tall one says, broke back mountain, fag and faggier, strolling in the woods. He takes the last sip from a can of PBR and flicks it into the woods. Like mother, like son, says the short one. How cute. They both have the same small teeth and thin lips. We're not hurting you, says John, just above a whisper. Cole can see John's hands shaking, but his voice is even. Cole's chest pounds, chanting in his ears. He wants to run, but his feet are numb, sinking in the wet ground. That's where you're wrong, Chinky, says the tall one. You've ruined the juju of our new smoke spot. We'll go then, says John. He looks to Cole with pleading eyes. Cole stands still, hardly breathing, resisting the urge to grab John's hand. Anyone home, says the tall one to Cole. He comes up close to Cole and pokes him in the forehead. Cole can see the gunk in his eyes and smell the beer on his breath. Don't touch him, says John, firmer now. He takes Cole's hand. Let's go. What did you say, cocksucker? I'll tell everyone that we're the ones who caught you two fucking in the woods. And then the tall one punches John square in the mouth. His teeth cave into his face. John falls over and the boy keeps hitting him. Cole feels his cold stiffness and hot blood spread through him, panic and paralysis. The short one, turning from his cousin, shoves Cole down and punches him in the nose. Cole swallows blood and all he feels is dizziness. The kid punches him again, then winces and clutches his hand. 
His cousin appears over Cole with a rock in his hand and breaks it into Cole's face over and over until it all becomes black and silent. After he's discharged from the hospital, Cole stays in his room, aside from hobbling to the bathroom. He watches old movies on his computer and tries to read, but his eyes are sore and the print blurs. His mother brings him food for a few times a day and helps him drink raspberry yogurt smoothies through a straw. She puts her hand on his head and asks if he wants to talk, tells him that she's here, that she understands. Her face is drawn and her hand feels cold. He doesn't want to talk, but he leans his head against her arm and listens to the blood running in her veins. His grandmother makes him soup and oatmeal, but she doesn't come up. Doesn't like to climb the stairs, she says. His nose is broken, shattered more like, and he can't focus like he used to. His eye sockets and cheekbones are swollen and throbbing, his lips slit and scabbed. A tooth is chipped. He can't remember names of the nurses and doctors in the hospital. The doctors say they don't know the extent of the damage. That's what they keep saying, the extent of the damage. Cole asks them how John's doing. They say they can't tell him that and don't look at him when they say it. When Cole's mother calls the Karamotos, they say they want nothing to do with the family and hang up. The six miles between them is an impenetrable distance, it seems to Cole. Wherever John is, it isn't where Cole can reach him. It's foolish, Cole hears his grandmother say downstairs. He's leaning against the wall on his way from the bathroom, kissing a boy at school like that. You can't be serious, snaps his mother. Jesus, Mom. It's different for boys, you know that. It's just not safe. The sink faucet turns on and off. Have you told Kyle? I think you ought to. There's a long pause. Cole takes a step down to see if his mother is shaking or nodding her head, but she's out of view. He wasn't doing anything wrong, says his mother. And the state of the other boy, I can't imagine being his mother. We're lucky in a way. He's lucky. Silence for a few moments. Kyle would want to know what happened to his son, says his grandmother. Then he could ask. Lying awake in the dark, Cole sees John's face ripped apart by the tall Collins kid's fist, and there is the sense draining from John's body as he succumbs to the beating. Cole wonders if John regrets it, any of it. Cole doesn't have regrets. Their moments in the woods are what he tries to think of. He believes those feelings may be the best he has ever felt or will ever feel. When Cole's not asleep, not yet asleep and no longer awake, he also sees the kid above him. As he pulls back for another punch, the boy starts to cry. The boy cries as he hits Cole, and he turns away so he doesn't have to look at the bloodied face below him. His cousin, leaning over Cole with a rock in his hand, has a possessed gaze of rage. There's something else in him. When Cole wakes, he doesn't know if it's true or not, and if he wants it to be. After several days, there's a knock on Cole's door. Before he can answer, to tell his mother that he isn't hungry or cold and he doesn't need anything, the door opens and the boy walks in. Cole sits up. The panic pounds on him and he opens his mouth but doesn't speak. I'm Kenny. Kenny Collins, the boy says, his voice shaky. The door was open. He looks pale and scared. Cole stays still. 
I can go, the boy says and turns to the door. What do you want, says Cole. I'm sorry, says Kenny. I'm sorry for what I did. It was wrong. Cole watches him. The boy shifts in his feet. He's become, his face becomes red and he looks down. Shouldn't have beat you so hard and left you like we did. He sounds like he repeated this aloud to himself on the way over. Cole notices the yellowed bruises along the boy's knuckles. The boy puts his hands in his pockets. Tim doesn't know I'm here. I know he's feeling real bad too, but he won't say it. He gets like that sometimes. Beats on me too. He's the one who called the cops and told them that you guys were in there, he adds, with a look like he didn't mean to let that out. Did you tell them it was us? Cole shakes his head. Out his window, he can see his mother and grandmother stringing Christmas lights in the big pine tree at the end of the driveway. What happened to John? He got beat pretty bad, broke a bunch of bones. Kenny looks up and meets Cole's eye. They're saying he's blind. Cole feels a red fury come up in him, from his stomach to his chest and through to his fingertips. His body feels tight and hot tears come to his eyes. A pressure builds in his throat and he begins to scream, a guttural howl. He clenches the blankets at his sides and kicks his feet up and down, pounding them into the bed. The sound from his mouth feels foreign and strong. Kenny jumps back at the shriek, runs from the room and down the stairs, and slams the front door behind him. And Cole keeps screaming and clenching and kicking until he becomes so exhausted that he falls asleep, face stained with salty tears, and his throat dry and empty. When he wakes up to the sun rising out his window, he walks to the bathroom and looks in the mirror. His face is a pale yellow, still swollen and misshapen. He puts his finger to his cracked nose and pushes in, feeling the nerves throughout his body rush there. He holds his breath and adds more pressure. His head is light and spinning. The pain abandons the rest of his body for the time being. He heads back to bed, where he lies for hours. His face throbs and his mind is numb. He waits for the sun to go down again and pretends to sleep when his mother peeks in. With closed eyes, he feels closer to John in his darkness. Thank you. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you, Anna and Jenny. Um, the next person who's going to be introducing someone, someone near and dear to my own heart, who has a recent collection of poetry called Active Gods that I highly encourage people to um, check out. He's the executive director at Lighthouse and one of the poetry instructors and one of the memoir instructors, um, Mr. Michael Henry. Wow. Pretty good so far, huh? Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love the draft. It, it, it can be an intense experience, as you've um, probably noticed. Um, but I love the intensity of that. I think, um, wow, you know, I, the idea that um, there may not always be joy and happiness in the, in the stories that we tell um, is certainly um, a, a deep truth. 
but I think in the telling and sharing of our stories with one another, um, we find maybe not necessarily happiness or giddiness, um, but we find a sense of communion and grace, and I think um, this has been a great example of that. Um, I feel very lucky to be a part of um, this community um, and to hear these powerful stories. Um, so, so thank you for that. Um, so um, Andrew and I, when, when we first started Lighthouse like a billion years ago, 17 years ago I think it was, um, we had a loft downtown and we, we um, bought a really big wraparound white couch, um, which people told us was very, very dangerous. Um, and we co-taught all the classes, and so people would come to our loft and they would sit on the white couch, and um, we would run the workshops. Um, I was like 17 at the time. It was really kind of fun. So... Um, and we met um, Liz Westerfield um, and her husband Scott Kinneman back then. Um, they were in their they were in their young you know and the, they were like eighteen and nineteen too. So um, we were all just young and hanging out, and it was great. Um, they were wonderful. They were they were a power couple, and we aspired to be a power couple just like them. Um, they were both incredible writers and um, just fun. Um, just I don't know. They made you feel happy, you know, and. Um, I was so I was so excited always to have them in workshops, um, and we still quote them. Andrew and I quote quote some of the things that they've said in class. Um, I always like to quote Scott. Scott's a poet, um, and he took my poetry workshop, and so I like quoting him. Quoting Christopher Reeve playing Superman. So if Andrew says something to me, I sometimes will say, "Well, I don't know about that, Lois." And so you know, it's it's always really fun. Um, so um, I, I teach poetry and memoir, and this past session I taught the advanced memoir class, and um, Liz signed up for it, and I did a little jig. I was so happy, because I am Irish, you know? Can, can you tell? Yeah. I know it's not St. Patrick's Day. Um, I was very happy, because I, I had read her writing a, a while ago, and I was like, oh, I want to hear more about this story. It's a fantastic story. Um, and I think with the generational thing, um, and this happens to me in workshop all the time, I feel... Like, I learned from the students. We had a fantastic group. They were so intelligent, such good writers. They had all just fascinating stories. Um, and, you know, hearing Liz's story, it's a story about adoption. And the piece she's going to read is, a, is a, a conversation, or the whole essay is about a conversation she has with her adoptive parents, um, asking them questions. And I think, you know, what I learned from that is, you know, this whole generational idea, it reminded me of a, a quote from the poet Sharon Olds, when she talks about when you have kids, it's the story of replacement. Your kids are replacing you. Um, I know that sounds really sad, doesn't it? Um, but, but it's true in a way. And I think, you know, Liz's, I learned from Liz's essay that the idea that, sure, it may be the story of replacement, but you are always going to be the child. Um, and in that respect, you are always going to have questions. And I admired in the piece how she, this is memoir, so um, I admired in the piece how she has the courage to ask her parents questions that she's always had. So um, I hope you'll enjoy it. Please welcome Liz Westerfield. Thanks, Mike. Um, it's great to be back at, Light, at Lighthouse after kind of a hiatus um, of like 15, 16 years. Um, and we really had a great um, memoir group um, this last cycle. It was quite amazing. Um, 
So um, a couple things about my piece. Um, one is it's part of a larger piece, and today I'm going to read you, um, it's kind of two sections that um, are different pieces that are connected. Um, and I have changed some of the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> um, but it is a memoir. Um, I remember the day my mother drove one block down the hill to the beach and without a walker slowly, carefully navigated the rickety walk to watch as kids played in the water. She'd been coming to this beach, beach since she was two years old. She no longer lived up the block in the house that her grandfather built. Lines of age graced this house near the Connecticut shore, and it was sometimes hard to tell if it was charming or neglected. She now lived in a nearby retirement community in her own apartment that she had painstakingly decorated. At the end of the day, she had dinner and a glass of wine and then drove back. I used to think about it as a habit so entrenched that it couldn't fail. But really, it was a risk. She carefully balanced herself getting into the car and barely made it home. The next day when I called her, she answered the phone groggy with the gravelly voice of a very old man. Is this my mother, I say? Yes, it's me. She tries to laugh. I feel dizzy and have to lie down. It doesn't matter what happened next, but she would never drive again or walk on her own. I thought about that for a long time afterward. One day she held fiercely onto her life as it was. The next, it wasn't that life anymore. Months later, I gently pushed my mother's wheelchair from the nursing care center to what we call the other side, which is where she used to have an apartment until she had what she refers to as her episode. The pub is a small, dark-paneled room that is intimate and inviting, and as it fills up, it becomes noisy and difficult to hear. Mom is extraordinary as she pushes herself physically and cognitively, desperate to stay connected and engaged. Remarkably, she greets most people by name. She's persevered through Parkinson's, this crazy disease that continues to throw impediments in her way. She still paints, and she has so many friends that my daughter says, when I grow up, I hope I have as many friends as Nani. Where did you go and what did you look into, she asks. I show her pictures from my trip to Kansas City. She studies them carefully. I had wondered what kind of a building I had lived in for the two months that I was on my own as a baby there before I was adopted. I had learned that it was the hub of TWA and flight attendants on their days off came to hold the babies. It haunts me to think about rooms full of babies, not yet adopted, and I had somehow imagined it as a white, pristine building that was very hygienic. Instead, it was a tan brick building that was spare and lonely, with a plaque that read, Former site of St. Anthony's Home, staffed by the Sisters of Charity and Catholic Family and Community Service, 1955 to 1986. As Mom scrutinized the building, she didn't recognize it, which is not surprising because she maybe spent only an hour there more than 50 years ago. As she talks, the words come out very slowly, each word stretched to its limit, and I pause to allow her the time to fully reflect. She sees how important it is to me. She notices the tape recorder. I ask her the questions I have never asked before. So what was it like when you went to go pick me up? We had all these fancy blankets and things and just headed home, and I held you with Dad driving. Because there were no child seats, right? You held me in your arms? I held you. 
So what was it like when you went to the building where you picked me up? What were you thinking? We were thinking, well, we can't wait to see you. We didn't see pictures of you or anything. Oh, you didn't? No. What did you expect? They picked out one they thought would be good for us. (laughs) How did they pick out the right baby? I don't know. Was it a big decision for you to decide to adopt a baby? Oh, yes, we tried and tried, and we were about to get one, you or one, in Cincinnati. (laughs) We had all the paperwork done, and then Dad had to take a new job, so we moved to Kansas City, and then we had to start all over again getting the information. Was it always going to be a baby girl? Yes, we asked for a girl. So when you drove to pick me up, what were you thinking? What were you and Dad thinking or talking about? What was I thinking? Well, this is a wonderful day in my life, and we couldn't wait to get you home and in the house. It seems so long ago. We just gave you your bottle and followed the directions on what to do. (laughs) What did you think about how I looked as a baby? Did you think that, well, you were, the people at the place said, You're going to love this little girl, but there's one problem with her. She has beautiful blue eyes, and her father went to Yale. Your beautiful eyes were the focus of everyone who saw you. Did you want to give me back when you heard about Yale since Dad went to Princeton? (laughs) No, no, it really was the highlight of our life. Really? Yes. That's so sweet, Mom. We felt so lucky to get approved because we had to be approved. Did they visit? Did they have to check on me? I don't remember them coming to visit. Maybe they came before. Yes, they do that, a home study. And you passed. We passed with flying colors. Wow, thanks for picking me up, Mom. Um, We could have dumped you out the window, she laughs. Later, my husband says, so why were you so shocked that your mom said it was the highlight of her life? I don't know. I I just couldn't really believe it. It helped a lot that she is at a point in her life where she doesn't have the energy to try to please me. So that made a really big difference, that she said that when she wasn't visibly trying to make me happy. When I listened to her, I understood things in a completely different way than I have ever understood them before. She's never said that to you before, my husband wonders. When I was small, she held me and called me her little adopted angel. I always knew how much she loved me, but in some ways I did not understand what it what it was for her to go and kind of receive what was maybe the biggest present of her life. I didn't understand that adopting me represented that to her. I think maybe I understood um, that, that because my mother really wanted things to be as normal for me as possible, and she didn't want to burden me with that. It's funny, my husband says, because when I heard the tape, it didn't surprise me at all that your mom would say that. I don't know if your dad in some moods would have, but I would have assumed she would say that. The interesting piece is your surprise. Going through the papers on my desk today, I realized that Leslie Elliott, my biological grandmother, must have died by now. When I go to look up her obituary, I see that she died several years ago at the age of 96. It's an odd feeling to recall that the only time I spoke with her, I lied and pretended to be someone else to spare her feelings. Um, and so she wouldn't know that I was looking for my biological father and her son, Thomas R. Richardson. When I read the obituary, I'm surprised. It carefully lists her survivors, including my father and her only grandson, John Richardson from California, 
followed by three great-grandchildren, unnamed, and several nieces and nephews, named. In my curious experience of trying to understand where I came from, I am surprised. The only time I spoke to my biological father, I asked him how many children he had, and he said, two. I mean, three. Um, Not wanting to crowd or rush him in any way, I resisted the urge to push and ask him about his hesitation and what it meant. At the time, I wondered if he was counting me in at the last moment. Yet now, as I read the obituary, there is only one child listed, which puzzles me. It seems like Leslie Elliott didn't know about her son's other children, the two with his current and longtime wife. Um, And in addition, there are two of us that he had on the side. I learned from my biological mother that in addition to fathering me, he fathered another child with a different woman at the same time. When I Google now, I look at the many John Richardsons in California. Among them, I find an entrepreneurial digital and audio producer in Santa Monica. The The idea of him feels cozy and familiar. My husband is a video producer, and we lived in Venice, adjacent to Santa Monica for many years. I imagine what kind of conversation we might have, how it might lead to instant recognition on many levels. But I have great difficulty finding a photograph of him, and I start to wonder why I have to grab on so quickly to this idea of a certain kind of John Richardson. I find another John Richardson who makes things. His furniture is funky and appealing, combining found, high-quality furniture with particle board drawers that he makes, a kind of mashup. I study the chest of drawers on his website and imagine one in my house. I could have one, I think. Then I wonder what it would be like if I started to collect things from these John Richardsons, (laughs) not knowing who they are or if they are related to me, but gently growing a collection of possibilities. It begs the question of who I want to be and who I want to be related to, or if I even want to determine ultimately who the real John Richardson is. It could be more private, a collection of pieces or items that represent possibilities, not limitations. Then I stumble on an image of John Richardson that looks like me, like my father. He shares the same same pale blue eyes that I have that I have never before seen on anyone else and that, that I long searched for when I went to look for my biological parents. I take out one of the few photos I have of my father, grainy and bleeding color from my printer, that is unaccustomed to printing photographs. I see how their noses and chins and even eyes, they're different in color, seem similar somehow. He has a kind face, and we look alike. It says that he's a pastor of a friend's church. But I think it's okay. It looks like a Quaker church. <laughs> even then, I know I'm not really acknowledging what I'm thinking, because I don't recall Quakers calling themselves a church. It is admittedly a reach, a stretch for something that is familiar. Instead, I go to the church website and I see that it is fundamentalist and evangelical, a path that, at least in my mind, is hard to match with California. He has three children, which is what the obituary alluded to, and he has a Twitter account that I click onto. I notice how much he talks about his family and celebrates outings and concerts. I note that we have attended um, some of the same concert tours. I go back to the church's website and note the excitement about group adult baptisms. For some reason, this is a big signifier to me. It feels falsely exuberant and filled with pretense and sad. I feel that it would be impossible for me to have a relationship with anyone who took part in this. 
Still, I can't quite leave the page that shows how to contact John Richardson. It feels tantalizingly easy. As I piece together the story in my mind, I don't think father and son have a real relationship. Where did the Christianity come from? Later, when I unpack my story to my husband, Scott, he says, it seems like maybe he wasn't a really good guy. Scott is referring to my biological father. The limited one-time phone call I had with my biological father was a bit cold, and he seems to have specialized in getting women pregnant. <laughs> Sometimes I agree with Scott that there's probably something, there's something probably a bit wrong with Tom Richardson, but I'm not ready to give up. When I see his wife on the Internet, she looks sweet and tender, and I think, how could she be married to a Tom Richardson that was heartless? When I go to her Facebook page, which has security settings that are far too strict, I see that her favorite movie right now is a movie about Alzheimer's, and I wonder if Tom Richardson has Alzheimer's. I worry that time is running out and that it may be difficult to know what I want to know. That was amazing. Thank you, Liz. I feel like so much in our culture today asks you to look at kind of dollar signs and bottom lines to tell you whether you're doing the right thing or not. And I feel like um, the readings by Jovan and, and Anna and Liz, and I'm sure this next one, tell me that we're doing the right thing. And it just makes me grateful. Thank you for that. Um, Next up is Mr. Alexander Philippe, who will be introducing our final reader. It's going to be a multimedia experience. Alexander uh, most recently uh, finished Dock of the Dead, which is out and around. Is your new documentary out yet, the Hitchcock one? The Hitchcock documentary is in the works come to LitFest to hear more about it, but it is about the shower scene in Psycho. Spoiler alert, but um, <laughs> what a, a talented and wonderful person we met in the early aughts. Um, he sat on the white couch for his interview. He, w- he, was, he was barely 12, um, and, and we never looked back. Mr. Alexander Philippe. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so um, so Wesley, where are you, Wesley? I can't. Hey, Wesley. So uh, so Wesley Webb, uh, you know, joined my uh, advanced screenwriting workshop. I think a little bit over a year ago now, year and a half, maybe something like that. Okay, maybe longer than I thought. Uh, <laughs> And um, and he showed up with the most bizarre logline I had ever read. I mean, like, hands down. Uh, for a screenplay which was enigmatically titled Man vs. Turtle. Uh, so the logline, I'm going to read you the logline. Um, it goes something like this. Man meets Terrapin, an ecological comedy about roadkill and relationships... Based on a true story. (laughs) Don't let this fool you, though. Wesley can really write. 
you know, Men vs. Sturgill aside, he's currently working on a truly exhilarating action piece, a black comedy, and a psychological thriller. So four screenplays basically at the same time. Um, his screenplays really defy genre. They break the rules. They frequently startle you with major tone shifts. Uh, and they're also immensely entertaining. So I'm really delighted to introduce you this evening to a, uh, a truly original voice uh, in screenwriting uh, and to a tale that I would qualify as a UFO uh, with a seemingly mundane act of moral turpitude setting things off and causing an improbable and frankly bizarre chain reaction of events. It is now time for Man versus Turtle. Fading, obscure, county highway dead. The road is quiet. A turtle crawls on the asphalt, nearing the center line. The car nears and zooms past the turtle. In the car, Mark, 40s, looks in the mirror. Girls, did you see that turtle back there? In the back suit, Charity, 10, Harmony, 8, stop picking at each other. We look over the back of the seat. Big one! Take a picture! Yeah, take a picture, Dad! We'll do more than that. We'll help it across the road. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> On the road, the car brakes, makes a U-turn, returns slowly. Mark pulls in on the packed dirt, driveway uh, to a field. Stay in the car. I'll bring him over and you can see him up close. Mark steps from Paul, looks both ways, waits for a couple of cars to go by. The girls kneel on the back seat. They're excited, clutching cheap digital cameras. A pickup truck approaches. Mark glances at it, back at the turtle. The turtle drifts across the center line, crushes the turtle. Pop! Shell fragments and bloody body parts fly in all directions. Son of a bitch! You asshole! The girl turns. The, girl, the girls turn and sink out of sight. Begin wailing. In the truck, Route 20, Rin keeps driving. And another one buys the dust. Oh yeah, both one this week. At the car, covering his mouth, Mark turns slowly away from road. He, tur- he returns to car, settles in the driver's seat. I'm, I'm sorry you had to see that. We almost saved it. Oh, Daddy! Reaches back, pats each girl reassuringly. Listen, next time I see a turtle, I'll stop and we both say it. Was it a girl turtle or a boy turtle? I don't know, sweetie. Buckle up. We're just minutes in Brandy's place. Mark's back, uh, Mark backs the car onto the road and leaves. Exterior, Brandy's house day. Mark pulls in, parks in the driveway, on the porch. Mark knocks on the door. He and the girls wait. Granny, 70s, emerges, grabs her granddaughters in a big hug. Oh, there's my babies! Yay, Granny! Yay, she hugs Mark, then leans back, worried, studies his face. Son, are you okay? Huh? What'd you say? Yeah, I'm okay. It's dragged down during my energy. Well, come in and unwind. I spent all morning baking treats for y'all. 
Actually, do you mind if I bring in my laptop and work on a quick email? Just something on my mind, and then I can do that. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. You do whatever you need. At the dining table, Mark punches over his laptop, typing rapidly. In the kitchen, Granny and the girls bake cookies and laugh. Oh, <laughs> Mark stops typing, sits taller in chair. Dear editor, please publish my letter to the driver of the Dodge pickup driving on Woodridge Road at 5 p.m. on Friday. I don't know what that poor turtle crossing the road ever did to me. What lesson did you plan to teach my kids? That life is full of cruel jerks who will destroy a harmless creature in a second? Exterior, small town Main Street, afternoon. An old tractor cutters past a modest one-story building. The plate glass window reads, Waycross Journal Herald, at a cluttered desk. James, 60s, studies his computer reading. I can't believe you found any possible amusement in killing a helpless turtle placed by faith in your vile path. This malicious cold-blooded savage, like you practice wholesale atrocities toward everything on the face of the earth? No. Or do you concentrate all your murderous tendencies in the production of road fields? smart Jones, Atlanta. James sits thinking, looks directly into the camera. The letter raised a legitimate point. Everywhere I go, I see dead critters on the road thrown off on the shoulder. It was a survey. <laughs> Interior to exterior, frame house, morning. The Dodge 4x4 truck and a compact sedan sit in the driveway. Claire, 20s, in a house coat, retrieves newspaper from the yard. At the kitchen table, Claire eats breakfast, unfolds newspaper. At counter, Ralph pours a cup of coffee. Oh, my Lord! Mm, bad news in Washington? Someone ran over a turtle! So? Ralph loads the toaster with bread slices. Right in front of a man and his two children. Really? Were they hurt? Not physically by the sound of it. No worries then. Claire eyes Ralph with a what-the-hell expression. He peers into the toaster. Wait a minute. Don't you come home on Hendricks Road? This sounds like your truck. Oh, wait, well, give me that. <laughs> he snatches the newspaper from her, reads the page. Impossible. Why would... Nope, that's not me. Are you sure? Did you see a turtle on Hendricks Road this week? You didn't run over any turtles or anything? A bat? Of course not. Claire stands and stares at him. She leaves kitchen, the door slams. The noise bothers Ralph. He looks up from the newspaper. Claire? Panic. He ditches the newspaper and runs. Ding! Burnt toast pops out of the toaster. In the driveway, Claire kneels, inspecting the front of Ralph's truck. Hmm. Ralph flies out the front door. What you doing looking at my truck? Just looking. Ralph squeezes between Claire and the truck. Come on, baby, let's go inside. Uh, sure, honey, sure. Ralph relaxes, walks towards the house. I can't believe the lies they print. You'd think they'd find better things to write about. He reaches the door, holds it open like a gentleman. Claire didn't follow him. Babe? At the truck, Claire squats, inspecting the rear bumper, wiggles something loose, turns it over in her hands. Ralph appears. Babe? <laughs> You creep! 
You damn creep! What? You lied to me! Give me that. It's part of a turtle shell. You were on Hendrick's Road. You lying piece of... I told you it wasn't me. Really? Then how did you get this on your truck? My tires must have picked it up and it wedged in the bumper. Claire sniffs fragment, shoves it into Ralph's hands. Smells sort of fresh to me. Ralph pulls it up to his nose. Claire resumes her examination of the truck. Please don't. It's dirty. Stop. He reaches for her. She slaps his hand. Don't touch me. Ralph grabs her in a bear hug, pulls her towards Ralph. I ask you, stop. Come on now, stop. Claire kicks and bucks in his arms, then relaxes. All right, all right, enough. Let me go. Ralph releases her. Just calm down, okay? Peace. He extends his hand, palms up. Okie dokie, big man. She reaches for his hand. Oh, by the way, this looks like animal guts. Just thought you should know. She stalks back inside the house. He looks at the red goo in his palm. In the kitchen, Ralph scrubs his hands in the sink. Claire enters wearing a nice dress and white gloves. Want to go to church? Now, you know that's not my thing, Claire. I'm going to pray for your perverted soul. (laughs) Maybe you ought to go and pray for that turtle. Oh, animals don't have souls. Oh, really? How would you know? Show me the Bible where it says they don't. Well, I, I, uh... Mm, Right. Exactly as I thought. Interior. Church day. A small church. Barely big enough for a hundred people if they take turns breathing. The walls painted white. No stained glass windows. The old pine pews unpainted. Today's congregation has only 30 people, mainly elderly and middle-aged, all in clusters in the front pews. As a hymn ends, Ralph and Claire slip inside the rear doors and sit halfway down behind all the other congregants. Preacher, in his 50s, stands at the pulpit. Oh, Lord, guide the words of my heart to the portal of my mouth and let me, let me be an instrument of your spirit. Amen! Amen. Today I want to call your attention to an item in the newspaper. A man wrote in to describe watching a pickup stir the kill of the Oh! One of God's preachers was crossing the road and just wanted to reach oh, the other side. Yes, amen. amen. Yes. And down that road came a man, not caring a thought for anything but himself. Amen. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over all the creatures, to fill and subdue the earth. He did not say to run it over in a pickup. <laughs> Release shall be the greatest to take care and not to despise the little one. Oh, amen. 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 Son of God said, The meek shall inherit the earth. Amen. He said, The merciful shall receive. Amen. He said, The pure in heart shall. Amen. Lord, amen. Let us pray. The preacher, congregation, and Claire bow their heads. Ralph has disappeared. <laughs> Lord, guide us, your children, in the week ahead. Help us consider this question. If we are bad stewards of this world, how would we earn place in eternal mm-hmm. heaven?
Under the pews, Ralph does a commando crawl towards the rear. And it's time we pray for God to watch over the man who wrote the letter in today's newspaper. And we ask the God of all creation to melt the frozen heart. Melt his heart. Of the heathen servant of the devil that in that Dodge truck. Mm-hmm. Dismayed at these words, Ralph jerks his head up and slams into the pew's undersized. Stupid turtle. Oh Lord, we pray to make us all better stewards of your creatures to heal and share this wounded world in the name of the Trinity. Amen. Amen. On the church steps, Ralph slips out the door. The congregation sings faintly inside. At Claire's car, Ralph tries the door. Clunk, clunk. All locked. He slides to the ground and and hugs his knees. (laughs) On the church steps, the preacher bids farewell to his departing flock. Thank y'all for coming. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for your homily, Pastor. I really felt the Holy Spirit calling me through your words. Okay, at Claire's car, she comes around the fender, jumps at the sight of Ralph. Oh, what are you doing? I'm waiting for you to open the door before I get burned at the stake. Claire opens her door, gets in, starts the engine. Ralph peeps over the trunk. None of the remaining people see him. He hurries to the passenger side, reaches for the door, clunk, still locked. He wraps his knuckles on the window, glances in. Claire lowers the window just to crack. Not gonna happen. <laughs> what? You walk back. Are you, are you kidding? I'm not letting a servant of Satan ride in my car. Did you become Joan of Arc? Please? Nope. I'll tell you, it'll take like, something like 30, 20, 20 minutes to get back there on foot. I'm counting on it. Well, now, no, please. Just think, if you were a turtle, it'd take you all day. <laughs> he clutches the door handle as she pulls away. He runs alongside the car for a hundred feet. She floors the gas. He can't hang on and jogs to a stop, gasping for air. He turns and looks back at the church. Everyone has gone. Crap, crap, crap. It was just a stupid turtle. Exterior, frame house, afternoon. Ralph trudges into yard. Each footstep hurts dearly. His truck is backed up to the open door. Black trash bags and loose man toys teeter in the cargo box. Claire drags a trash bag outside, heaves it onto the rock. Hey, now you're throwing the axe. Yep, we're done. It was just a stupid little And you lied about killing it. If I can't trust you about the little things, then I can't believe anything else you say. Claire grabs another trash bag, flings it onto the pile. Oh, this is crazy. Where am I supposed to go, Claire? I don't care. Go back to your mama. That's where you were saying before. <laughs> Claire goes inside, slams the door. Ralph tries the doorknob. He's locked out. I guess this means the wedding's off. <laughs> the mail slot snaps open. Claire's fingers flick an engagement ring out. <laughs> Exterior, apartment door, afternoon. One-story motel. Low-rent units line a standard exposed walkway. Ralph knocks on the door, number 106. 
After a delay, Frank, in his 20s, cracks door and peeps out. Oh, dude. <laughs> Surprise. Like... Yeah, I'm a uh, Frank. Why the hangover? You need to get laid. <laughs> hey, I, I, I was wondering if I could crash here for a day or two, Frank. What, Claire put you on? Well, yeah, she's mad over something stupid. So, uh, what about over here? Frank glances back into the room, ducks out of sight for a second, steps outside wearing t-shirt and boxer underwear. You flipping loco? And this is Claire's buddy at work. I drag you in and, oh, you pushing me in a river of trouble. Deep, and I can't swim. You're killing me, dude. Okay, okay, just, just chill. Frank stuffs money in Ralph's shirt pocket. There's some brain. Keep it flush. Thanks, Frank. Dude, you should like cancel your mom. <laughs> <laughs> she moved in with some retired prison, former prison guard. You know, I can't right now. <laughs> in his truck, Ralph sits staring blankly at the motel. He fishes Frank's crumpled wad of bills from his shirt. He counts. Three fives, four ones. He starts the truck, pulls into the street. Exterior, town park, afternoon. Ralph walks from his park truck, sits on a bench at the edge of a tranquil duck pond. A park guide, 30s, leads 12 children along the bank of the pond. Students, keep your eyes open and pay attention. Nature is all around you, and you can learn so much. <laughs> Ooh, what's that? Oh, good eye. That's a great example of a testidine reptile, better known as anyone? A turtle? Great answer, yes. <laughs> Turtles have ectothermic metabolism. Does anybody have an idea what that means? Something with a thermometer? <gasps> You're on the right track. Ectothermic means cold-blooded. A turtle's internal temperature depends on its surrounding conditions. They go into the sun to warm up and the shade to cool down. Does anyone know what animal poses the biggest threat to turtles? Uh, <laughs> Actually, quite a few species are endangered, mainly through human activity. Not me. Not me. Most fascinating, scientists have discovered that a turtle's organs do not deteriorate with age. Do you know what that means? They, they don't grow old? Correct. So one of the oldest animal species on Earth may end up teaching man more about life Provided, of course, if humans don't drive them into extinction. Oh, no. Not me. Now, Not me. After mating... They have sex? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> after mating, the female digs into sand or mud and lays its fertilizing eggs. The temperature of the egg determines the sex of the hatchling. High taps for females, lower taps for males. Wicked awesome. Ralph looks at his hands. They're clenched fists. What the? My hands. My hands. They're turtles. Oh! Parking area. A passenger van. Ferns nature tours on side. The children stare from the window. Nearby, the guide talks to a policeman and two EMTs. The guide gestures towards the duck pond. At, at the bench, the policeman approaches approaches with his hand on the holster. Mm -hmm. The EMTs follow several steps behind. They find the bench empty and look around. 
pick. I guess you're off the hook till he shows up again. I'll run the truck's plate to get it towed. In parking area, a tow truck pulls away Ralph's pickup. In his patrol car, the policeman fills out paperwork. He looks directly into camera. I feel a thousand bullets. He's not going far without his truck. Most likely, right now, he's out in those woods. Drunk, high, and lost. Tonight, let the speeders be on. And then come morning, he'll be ready to change his way. Exterior, duck pond, night. Lily pads bob in the dark water near the edge. Ralph's head rises up amidst the lilies. He surveys the park, all quiet except for croaking frogs. He crawls onto the bank, flops down on his back. He raises his hands, flexes his fingers. He rolls over, rises wearily, and staggers away. Exterior, County Road, Dawn. Ralph stumbles along the base of the road's embankment. Filthy clothes, dirty face, miserable and forlorn. An 18-wheeler approaches. Ralph drops prone among the embankment grass and trash. The big red, the big rig roars past. He gets to his feet, moves on. The delivery truck approaches. Ralph conceals himself again. He crawls away from the road into a clump of dense bushes. A trickle of water from a drainage culvert feeds a puddle. He strips off his clothes, washes them in water drapes them on the shrubs to dry. He curls into a fetal position, shivering. So cold. So cold. I give up. Ralph. Ralph's ground-level point of view. Crawls through the bushes into the grass beyond. Up the embankment, grunting. The undersides of vehicles whiz past. Crunches across the rough shoulder of the road. Heavy breathing. Bright sunshine on the asphalt. Warmer. Better. A horn honks as a car zips by. Please, please don't hit me. Please don't hit me. A siren grows louder. Finally. Here. Here I am. A patrol car screams past the siren fades. Hey. No. A car approaches, slows, wheels stop on blacktop. Two feet appear. Come close. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Two hands reach down beside car. Mark stands up holding a turtle 12 inches in diameter. Look at this one, guys. He opens the door and puts it on the floor under Harmony's feet. Wait, what? No, no! The girls squeal, begin taking photos. Daddy! I saw the head, I saw it! Pretty impressive, huh? It's amazing! Are we taking it home? Oh no, wouldn't be right. Are we going to eat it? No, no, let me go. Exterior, highway intersection, day. Mark signals and turns onto a new road. The sign reads, Auckland Hokie Swamp, National Wildlife Refuge. Besides Bayou, Mark places Ralph the turtle on the ground. Work three. The turtle extends legs and calls away. Mark and his girls depart. The turtle pauses and listens. The only sounds, the murmur of nature, birds, insects, frogs, and something else. Spray, spray, spray. A larger turtle appears, moves around Ralph. Howdy, stranger. The new turtle scrambles onto Ralph's shell. Uh. <laughs> Whoa, what are you doing? 
wait, you're a boy. <laughs> Whoa, does that mean I'm a... <laughs> Passionate reptile population begins. Oh, ah, ooh, oh, baby, wait, don't stop now. Come on back. Let it out. of life right there um thank you to all the readers tonight they were all amazing joe vaughn and uh um liz read it from my thing and wesley oh my god okay so all of you one more hand one more hand for Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.